as I was thinking about this, the worst one that comes to mind that I think a lot of people might think is that when God thinks about you, it's just apathy, meaning maybe God doesn't even think about me. Maybe you've experienced that, you know, life is going on and there's all these things happening. It's like, God, do you even think about me at all? Do you look at me? Do you care? Is God apathetic about you? No, it's not. <laughs> we're going to be in Luke. So turn to Luke. Turn to Luke because we're going to see in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15, what God thinks about us. Now we're going to be spending the next four weeks looking at the kingdom of God. So the title of this series is The Kingdom of God is Like dot, dot, dot. Because Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. In fact, that was his main message. If you ever want to know what is Jesus' main message in the Gospels, it's about his kingdom. And he, he taught on it by telling stories a lot of times, pretend stories uh, that people could understand, that worldly stories that tell a heavenly message. And he often started it with the kingdom of God is like, and then he would tell us what the kingdom of God is like. When Jesus entered the scene, everything changed. When Jesus entered the scene, all of creation, everything about the world changed. Because before that, God spoke to people, but he sent prophets. He spoke through prophets. Finally, when Jesus came, Jesus revealed the Father. God came in flesh to reveal himself. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, this is Jesus, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Jesus came to reveal the Father in a unique way, not just to point to the Father, but to go, this is what the Father's like. If you remember, Jesus had one of his disciples said, Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be content. He says, I've been with you so long and you haven't recognized me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus came to reveal the Father. So Jesus is going to tell us, here's what God thinks about when he looks at you. This is a big deal, at least for me. Uh, as I think about God, I, I can at times tend toward remembering my sin and think, when God looks at me, he remembers all those things that I've done. You know, and sometimes it's on a Saturday night when I'm preparing to teach and all my sin comes to mind. It's like, cool, God can't use you. Remember? You know, and that's part of the enemy. But he's going to address this in this. What does God think about when he looks at you? Turn to Luke 15. If you need a Bible, there's one in the seat underneath you. But Luke 15. Now, we're going to start in verse 11. We're going to look at this parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to really focus on the three characters. There's three characters in this story. There's the prodigal son, the, the first son. There's the father. And then there's the older son. We're going to focus mainly on the prodigal son and the father. But the older son is an, a unique study in and of itself. But let's start in Luke 15, verse 11. And he said... There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. So he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. Here's the, the first character, the son. Now, as we look, we're supposed to relate to either the, the younger son or the older son. And a lot of us, maybe at different times in life, we relate to one more than the other. But here, there's this younger son. Now, what does this younger son do? And you got to understand culture a little bit. He goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance now. I mean, imagine right now going to your dad, going to your mom and go, hey, I want my inheritance now. I mean, it's goofy in this society. But then that's like going, hey, I kind of wish you were dead. Give me, give me the stuff. It was a, a bold act of rebellion against his father saying, I want to move on. I don't want to be tied to you anymore. Give me half your stuff. And the father did. You know, that's a, a, a question mark, at least for me. Why would the father do it? But the point of this story isn't so much that. But the father does. He, he divides his property and he gives his younger son half. And what does the younger son do? He leaves town and he squanders it. He goes and he parties. He gathers together some, some new friends and he spends his money on booze and, and high living, hanging out, partying, doing whatever he wants to do. He was with the father. Life was good. He's like, I want to go do what I want to do. And he goes and he does what he wants to do. Can anybody relate? I see some nodding. Maybe you shouldn't nod because other people are looking at you too. <laughs> yeah, raise, yeah, I mean, I, I know me, I was raised knowing Jesus. And then there's periods in my life where I'm like, yeah, this is sin, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Oh, why? I think we can all relate to a certain extent. But what does the son do? This is in your notes if you're a note taker. The son disrespects and rebels against his father, living a loose and sinful life. He blows the money, does whatever he wants, lives for himself. Now, it's important to, to pay attention. Who is Jesus's audience right here. Uh, if you're at Luke 15, look back at uh, Luke 15 verses 1 and 2, because this is who's in the audience. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's two groups in the audience. There's the tax collectors and there's the sinners. So these are the people that boldly are following the world. These are the people that have rebelled against God. They're in a Jewish society, but they're saying, I'm not going to follow him. I'm going to go do what I want. Prostitution, tax collectors. I mean, we think they're bad now. They were even worse then because the tax collectors would represent Rome, a foreign government, Jews working for Rome, taking money from fellow Jews. And they always would take typically more money than they were supposed to because that's how they got their income. So these are blatant sinners. They're in the audience. And think about it. They're at the edge of their seat. Because as Jesus is describing this son, they're going, that's me. That's me. We're, and he's going to tell them, here's what God thinks about you. But then there's also the Pharisees and the scribes. These were the religious leaders. These were the ones that had everything. They looked good. They were those people that when you come in on church, you know, they're dressed nice. You know, their family looks perfect. You go to their home, they've got that per perfect family picture. You know, and it's like, we're just all good. But inside, they were rebellious. It was just an image. They weren't actually following God. And so, well, that's not true. Most of them weren't actually following God. They were just religious. And so he's speaking here directly 
to the sinners, to the tax collectors. So what happens to this son? He rebels, takes his father's stuff, goes, spends it all, and what happens? A famine hits. The Great Recession of 2008 hits. And all his money is spent, all his friends abandon him, and he's down and out. And so he goes and he hires himself out to a Gentile. Again, cultural stuff. Jew, then working for a Gentile for them, that was pretty low. And what, did he have, what was his job? To go feed pigs. How did Jews feel about pigs? <laughs> they can't eat pork. Pigs are filthy animals. If you've ever raised pigs, they're filthy, filthy animals. They're awesome animals, but they're filthy animals. And so he goes and he's with the pigs and he's feeding them. And he's so hungry, he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. So he's dumping it out and he wants that food. Down and out. You know, I made a note in my own Bible next to this. Sometimes the best thing God can do for somebody is let them hit rock bottom. And I've prayed this for people before. God, let that person hit rock bottom because they in their pride are doing what they want and they need you. And we're, we're talking eternity here. When, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom is here now. The kingdom is wherever God is in control, wherever God is working in and through his people. So the kingdom be, begins now and it extends to eternity. A lot of times we think when he says the kingdom of heaven, we're thinking, oh, that's later, heaven, that's later. It starts now. Jesus' first message, when he entered his ministry, he started walking around, and he had one message. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his first message. Repent means turn, because the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's right here, because the king had entered the scene. Jesus, God in flesh, came. The king is here. The kingdom of God is at hand, and I'm going to start establishing my kingdom right now. And so here, the son, lowest of the low, down and out, and he comes to his mind. What does it say in verse 17? But when he came to himself, maybe you can relate to that. When you're down and out, you hit the bottom, and the light bulb goes on, bing. That's what happened. He came to himself. Very literally, this means repentance. He repented. He looked at his situation. He looked at the decisions he made, and he went, oops, I've been wrong. That was wrong. He, he came to himself. And then he turns, repentance. He says, I'm going to go back to my father. And he has this speech that he rehearsed. Can't you picture this? He went to a, it was a long journey, it says, to a far country. Going through, what am I going to say to mom and dad when I get back? He's just going over this speech, practicing it. Okay, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to start with this. Uh, I, I don't deserve to be your son, but let me be a servant because I know they at least get something to sleep in and they get some food. So make me. And so he's just going through all of this and he heads back. The son disrespects and rebels against his father. But then he recognizes his sin. He repents and he turns toward the father. He recognizes his sin, repents, and he turns back toward the father. That's repentance, to turn. Now, here's, here's where that question comes, right? So maybe you can relate to me that I've been there that I, I look at my sin in my past and I just, I want to erase it. You know, I want to erase it from my own memory. But I look at that and I go, okay, what does God think about me? Imagine this son going home. What is my God, or what is my father going to say to me? How is he, he going to respond? If I get there, is he just going to cast me out? Is he going to bring me in? Is he going to whip me first? What, what's he going to do? What do you think God thinks about you? You think he's remembering all your sin? 
I talk to so many people that say, I'll come to church after I get my act cleaned up. God can't accept me now. I'm messed up. If you knew about me, I'm messed up. So I can't go to church. I can't go to God. I got to fix myself first. Because they think, and maybe you have been there, that God looks at them and thinks they're dirty, thinks they're wrong, think, you know, doesn't like them. Or there's the, you know what, God is this spiteful God just waiting to punish. Oh, I can't wait to, to whoop them and get them back into shape to punish them. What does God think about this sinner coming back? And here's where we look at the father. And I would say in this whole story, the emphasis isn't the prodigal son. The emphasis is the father. If we remember anything, we remember the father. Look at how he responded. So look at verse 20. The son gets back and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found and they began to celebrate. So here's how the father feels about us. What does the father do? First, he sees him coming a long way off. Picture that. How did the father see the son coming from a distance? I think the implication is clear. He's been watching. I mean, just imagine being that father. He goes out to see what's going on in the field, and he just takes a few and just scans the horizon. When is my son going to come back? Just looking. And then he sees him. He sees him, and he's so far off, you know, he can't fully recognize, but he recognizes the walk. He's skinnier than he was when he left, a little dirtier, shabbier, but he recognizes that walk. That's my son. What does he do? He runs to him. Now, again, in our culture, we, we can't picture this, but this was a humiliating thing. This father, he was a noble. He had servants. He, so he, he had money. He was a wealthy man. Noble men, they didn't run. They wore robes. What do you do if you're wearing a robe and you're going to go run? you got to hike that thing up. <laughs> you know, the, the, those in battle, a lot of times the Bible talks about, you know, gird your loins. That, that, that means take up that robe and tuck it in your belt so you can run into battle. Well, here this father scoops up his robe and goes running. So picture the, the workers in the field, you know, they're working, and here comes the owner running by, all these pasty legs visible to everybody. <laughs> but really, it's, it was a humiliating thing for the father to do. They didn't do that. And he goes running to his son. And he gets there, and the son begins his well-rehearsed speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And he doesn't finish his speech. The father goes, shh, 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 go get a robe. He doesn't finish his speech. The father accepts him, just embraces him, kisses him. Where had he been? Working with the pigs. I mean, maybe he bathed in a puddle on the way back, but he's skinny. He's dirty. And the father embraces him. He doesn't say, go clean yourself up first. He pulls him in. He kisses him. He says, go get the best robe. That would have been his robe. The best robe, come, put it on him. Not go take a bath and then you can wear this best robe. He clothes him in the robe. The picture Jesus is giving is very clear that Jesus will clothe the repentant sinner in himself. I will put myself around you. I will make you clean. Now go get a ring and sandals. He said, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me a servant. He says, no, no, you're my son. He puts the ring on his finger. 
that ring is symbolic of him being welcomed in, not as a servant, as a son. And the Bible's clear. As we look at what happens to the one who repents and turns to God, he's adopted. She is adopted. You and I become sons and daughters of the king. We're not just saved so we get to go to heaven. We're brought into his family, intimate, close, beautiful. I, I mean, the son was going to talk about his sin and go, I, I was awful. I'm sorry. Father doesn't want to listen to it. He says, you're back. That's all I care about. Don't tell me about your sin. The father was watching and waiting for the son's repentance. He is anything but apathetic. And this is, as I was studying this, this is what hits me. He is not apathetic. He knows what we're going through. He knows the sin of our past, but he is watching and waiting. And he is even organizing things in our life to bring us back to him. Even those of us, maybe we've been in the church, but we still struggle with sin. We've still gone. He's watching and he's, he's allowing things to happen. We have free will. We can make our choices, but he's organizing things, hopefully, to bring us back to him. And sometimes that means hitting rock bottom. But the father runs to his son, his repentant son, humiliating himself and welcoming home with open arms. And then what's he do? He throws a party. He gets a fattened calf. Now, they didn't eat a lot of meat, and they had goats, and they had sheep, and they could eat those. Why would you kill the calf? Because the whole town was invited to this party. The whole town was brought in. I mean, the whole town knew when he left. That wasn't something that, that went unseen. The town knew. Wow, what's he, he's leaving with, with all half your stuff. And here, all the town comes to, to celebrate his repentance. Here in Luke 15, there's several other stories about something lost that's found. And the one right before this parable is the parable of the lost coin. A coin was found. The lady finds it and throws a party because, hey, my, my coin has been found. And then he says, look back at Luke 15, 10. Here's what happens when a repentant sinner is found. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God is not apathetic. The heavenly host is not apathetic. When a sinner repents, there's a party. There's a party for one soul. The father celebrates the salvation of his son. And he describes it very well in verse 24. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Jesus said when he came, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. That's what he came for. He didn't come to set up his kingdom. He did come to set up his kingdom, but not just for him. He came to seek and save the lost. And we as his church, that's what we're here for. He wants through us to seek and save the lost. And if you're in here and you haven't turned to him, guess what? He's been seeking you. He's been watching the horizon for you just to turn and come back. And when you do, he will run to you. And it cost him everything. You know, this humiliation of the Father, the direct picture is the humiliation of Jesus that it takes to save a sinner. Jesus came humble. God in flesh came humble, born in a manger, raised poor, died on a cross, naked. That was the most humiliating way to die. He did that. For us, He humiliated himself, himself for us so we could be brought back to Him. Biblical Christianity is different than every other religion. Every religion tells you what you need to do to get to God. Whatever it is, here's what you need to do to get to God. 
True biblical Christianity is the only one that says there's nothing you can do. He did it all. So all we do is repent and believe. All we do is turn toward him, and he has done the work for us. Now, maybe you don't fully relate to this prodigal son, but the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody is separated from God. And it says the wages of sin is death. So because of our sin, we all deserve eternity in hell separated from God. That's what we deserve. But that same verse says, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love toward us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That's this picture. While we were still sinners, he made a plan to bring us back into relationship with him. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. God did everything to bring us back to him. What does God think about you? <laughs> I put in my notes here, wow. You know, as I was just typing this up, and so, I just put wow. That God cares this much about us. I found a story that I want to read to you. It's, it's a, a modern retelling of this story. Let me read this. Jenny grew up in Carson City. This isn't a true story. This, this isn't somebody, so don't think like, oh, I know that person. Jenny grew up in Carson City. In her early teenage years, she fell into a pattern of long-running battles with her parents. They didn't react too well when she came home with a nose ring. They were furious when she stayed out all night without so much as a phone call to tell them where she was. Her friends weren't exactly her parents' first choice. One night, Jenny and her folks had a huge fight. I hate you, she screams at her father. She slams the door to her bedroom. That night, she acts on a plan that's been forming for some time. Once everyone has gone to sleep, she gets dressed, packs a bag, and goes into the kitchen. Opening the kitchen drawer, she rifles through her parents' wallets. She takes the credit cards, the cash, and their bank book. She hops on a bus and heads for Reno. When she gets there, she waits on the doorstep of Wells Fargo so she can be the first through the door. She forges her mother's signature and withdraws $12,500 her parents had in their investment account. She grabs a cab to the airport and uses dad's credit card to buy a ticket to Las Vegas. She figures the last place her parents will look for her is on the Vegas Strip. She arrives in Vegas, and pretty soon she's enjoying the high life. A new group of friends, plenty of booze, late nights, sleep all day, no school, no parents hassling her about a nose ring, let alone her experiments with sex and drugs. It doesn't take long till all the money's gone, and the credit cards have been canceled. Back home, her parents are frantic. Moms had to start packing shelves at night to pay off the credit card debt, and the $12,500 set aside for her sister's university fees is gone. The police are notified. The streets are searched, first Carson City, then Reno. Her parents don't know what's happened. They fear the worst. Meanwhile, down on the streets of Vegas, things aren't going too well. Jenny is soon addicted to heroin, and the money she stole doesn't go too far. She moves into a, into a flat. She starts selling herself to pay the bills. One day, she's walking down the street and sees a poster on the telegraph pole. It says, have you seen this girl? Below the heading is a photo of her at least as she used to look. The poster's got her parents' phone number on it and asks for anyone with information to call. Jenny rips the poster down, folds it up, and puts it in her pocket. The months pass, then the years. 
Jenny's been careless one time too many. At first, she writes off her sickness as just another bout of flu, but the illness persists. She goes to the free clinic to discover she's contracted hepatitis C and HIV. Not even the brothel wants anything to do with her now. As she sits lonely, tired and hungry in the flat, she looks at the poster she rescued from that telegraph pole and saved for the last few years. She thinks back to her previous life. As a typical schoolgirl and middle-class suburban Carson City family, it triggers memories of the, the famous family water fight one steaming one summer day when she was 12. And of those crazy moments dancing together, of her sister's comforting arms when she broke up with David. God, why did I leave? She says to herself. Even the family mutt lives better than I do now. She's sobbing now, and she knows that more than anything, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time, she says, Mom, Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up to Reno. I'll be in Reno Station about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I'll just stay on the train till I get to Salt Lake City. The next day on the train, Jenny thinks about all the flaws in her plan. What if mom and dad were out and they missed the message? What are they going to do if they heard it anyway? After all, it's been 10 years. They haven't heard a word from me in that whole time. How are they going to react when they discover I'm a junkie with AIDS? If they do show up, what on earth am I going to say? The bus pulls into Reno Station at 10 minutes past midnight. She hears the hiss of the brakes as the bus comes to a stop. Her heart starts pounding. This is it. Oh well. Get ready for nothing. Jenny steps out of the train not knowing what to expect. She looks to her right and she sees an empty platform. But before she can look back, she hears someone call her name. Her head whips around and there's her mom and dad and her sister and her aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmother. They're holding a banner that reads, Welcome Home. And everyone's wearing goofy party hats and throwing streamers and popping party poppers. And there's her mom and dad running toward her, tears streaming down their face, arms held wide. Jenny can't move. Her parents grab her with such force it almost knocks her over. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. Hush, child. Forget the apologies. All we care about is at your home. I just want to hold you. Come on, everybody's waiting. We've got a big party organized at home. And Jenny finds herself a wash and a sea of family and love she has not known for over 10 years. What does God think about us? That's what he thinks about us. He loves us so much. It doesn't matter what we've done. <laughs> you don't have to worry about your past. God, he puts our sins as far as the east is from the west. You know, here at Common Ground, we have this saying, and it's on your, your bulletin there, that you don't have to dress up, pretend to be perfect, or worry about your past. We just want you to experience Jesus, because this is God's heart for people. Now, the story's not over. I'm not going to read all the verses, but it goes on to the older son. The party's going on, and the older son comes back from the field, and they're partying, and he's mad now. He says, I never walked away. I've been here the whole time. He is the self-righteous religious leaders in the audience. Those who looked good. But inside, Jesus says, they were whitewashed tombs. You know, they were whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but in the inside, they were dead men's bones. That's the older son. He also rebels against the father. 
but he does it religiously. He's standing outside. He's like, I'm not going into the party. But what does the father do with the son? He comes out from the party. He goes to his son. Another humiliating thing. He goes to that son. That son disrespects his father. Doesn't call him father. Doesn't call his other son by name or call him his brother. He says, your other son did all this. And the father comes out to that son. That son needs to do the same thing. Repent and turn. And the story ends without seeing what happens to that son. And we could, we could go on about that, but I think there are many in the church that fit that mold. That think they're good, but they don't actually love God. They're just religious. The older brother disrespects and rejects the father in his self-righteousness. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the kingdom. But for today, I want us to dwell on what does God think about you? And if you're in here and you have not repented and turned, today's the day. If you have not made a decision to follow Jesus as Lord, do that today. We're going to sing another couple songs. And in the back, we're going to have our prayer warriors. Uh, Jeff and Kate are going to be back there. If you need to pray with them, go pray with them. If you hear this, you go, that's what God thinks about me. I want to know more. Go pray with one of them. Talk to them. They'll explain the gospel to you. If you need to repent, you can do that with them. You can come up to one of our prayer stations over here and over here. You can write your, your repent. You, you don't have to put your name on it, but you can. You can write your repentance. You can write your prayer. Roll it up. Stick it in the prayer wall. But respond as God would lead you to respond. Don't leave here unchanged. Don't leave here without connecting with Jesus on this truth. God loves you. He's been waiting for you. And even those of us who are believers, guess what? He loves you. And he's not remembering your sin. He's welcoming us in. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that we see this story and we see uh, how you really feel about us. Forgive me when I forget. <laughs> Forgive me when, uh, when I dwell on my own past sin. God, and I don't accept the forgiveness uh, that you've given. God, you clothe us in your righteousness. You make us right, and that's what we want. We want to be made like you. Lord Jesus Christ, change us to be like you. Live in and through us to seek and save the lost so that others, those out there right now that are suffering in sin, that are struggling with life, marriage, work, whatever it is, that through us, you could draw them to you and they could experience this forgiveness and this love. We worship you now in Jesus' name, amen.